HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome to Meet and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Severe storms have been dominating headlines this fall. This week, Hurricane Michael ravaged a section of Florida's panhandle that has already faced decades of hardship due to climate change, disappearing industry, and the BP oil spill. Apalachicola, one of the small, historic fishing towns that received a direct hit, has been home to a shrinking oyster industry, and this could be one of the final blows to that economy. We'll continue to follow recovery efforts in the panhandle. Sadly, this is a cycle of damage and repair that's becoming all too familiar. This week on Meat and 3, we take a look at the recovery efforts underway in other areas of the southeast, where Hurricane Florence displaced thousands of residents and caused billions of dollars in damages, especially in North Carolina. At HRN, we're wondering, what will Florence's long-term impact be on our food systems? We'll take a closer look at that question later in the episode, but first, how exactly does a 24-hour diner help the U.S. government prepare for a natural disaster like Florence? We turn to Ariama Long for answers. Most people consider Waffle House to be the holy grail of all things waffles and comfort. But it turns out their leadership teams are actually pretty boss in a crisis, too. Agencies have relied on the Waffle House Index since 1989 when Hurricane Hugo hit South Carolina. Former FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate coined the peculiar term. He just simply had a, a philosophy of uh, telling his people, you know, when, you, when you're going into a storm aftermath, if the Waffle House is open, keep driving. That's Director of Public Relations and Affairs, Pat Warner. He's been at Waffle House for 19 years. When Hurricane Florence hit the coast, Warner focused on storm response and recovery. If we are on a limited menu, then, you know, there's limited resources in that area. Maybe power's out or water's out. And then if you see a Waffle House that's closed, you know it's really bad right there. 
The WAHO, as it's affectionately called by customers, has disaster plans and strategies that could put the president to shame. They even have their own war room in Norcross, Georgia. Because our leadership as CEO was there before the storm hit. We had uh, executive vice presidents on the ground. Our chairman of the board was there. So everybody is there at the site of the storm, right after the storm, so they can make those decisions. Okay, so what's it like at Waho HQ? We're hearing from the leadership in the field of, of the game plan for what they're doing. So they're ready to roll in. 35 tractor-trailer trucks full of food that came in to replenish our stores and, uh, and respond to the storm. So our, our storm response team works with our vendors to make sure that they, they are there to help our, our local operations teams with whatever they need. And so really, that, that, that's what goes on in Norcross. Really, the, the, the heavy lifting, as it were, happens out in the field with, with our operating, operations team getting the restaurants back open and getting up and serving the public. Waffle House's command center is so reliable that FEMA actually set up an online dashboard where local, state, and federal agencies, as well as other companies, can communicate directly with them. But sometimes... Warner prefers to be on the front lines rather than the office. You get to really see what the impact is on the ground. And, and that's, that's really fulfilling for, for a lot of us is, is to hear those stories and have people come up and hug us and thank us for being there uh, right after the storm. And, and so I prefer the field, but the, the, the office has its perks. Like I said, I, you know, when you're in the field, you're probably going to stay in a hotel that doesn't have air conditioning or running water for a day or so. That's not always pleasant. but but the side where you, you feel like you've made the impact is, is when you're in the field. So what really motivates Waffle House leadership to step in in the first place? We take that responsibility very seriously to be quickly back and serving our customers. Because we are a 24-hour restaurant. We never close. So when they see us after the storm opens, it kind of gives that sense of we made it through and everything will be okay, and, and it helps the community as a whole come back. The restaurants work hard to be the shelters in the storm. People can come, eat, charge their cell phones, and also have that sense of fellowship with their friends and neighbors. Of course, Waffle House is not the only food business to help out. In the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, Chef Jose Andres and his organization, World Central Kitchen, championed the need to feed relief workers and residents after a storm. Dylan Hoyer spoke to two chefs, one a volunteer with World Central Kitchen and another with Operation Barbecue Relief, about their experiences in Wilmington, North Carolina, during Florence. So many people have come to other people's rescue. That six degree of separation gets pulled down to a three degree. That is Christy Ferretti, the chef and owner of Pine Valley Market, a restaurant and shop many consider a Wilmington landmark. When the hurricane hit, she wanted to help and began volunteering for World Central Kitchen. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins. And we were just like, uh, okay. <laughs> I asked how this process began. Where was all this food coming from? A truck is brought in before the storm with tons of inventory. Being all volunteers, it's not like we put an order in. It's a matter of getting on the truck. And we were literally doing like bear crawls over boxes, just trying to figure out what was there. Once the hurricane passed, Ferretti transformed her restaurant, opening it up as a secondary hub for meal production with World Central Kitchen. 
I have to be honest, the smell is just horrible. Right now, I'm happy to say that Pine Valley Market it smells like garlic and sautéed onions and bacon. And you know, so all the good is back in here. In the peak of the relief efforts, Pine Valley Market sent out 12,000 meals every day. As a chef, Ferretti tries to provide more than simply sustenance. She wants to make meals that are delicious. They've come in since we've opened our doors and just cried in my arms because they were so thankful to have what they considered a, you know, a home-cooked meal made with love. Operation Barbecue Relief is another organization that centers comfort in its hurricane food relief efforts. Every time there was a family gathering, you would have barbecue or southern comfort food, you know, macaroni and cheese, cornbread, smoked meats, because it's a comforting thing. People take solace in something that they understand. That's Daniel Doyle, the chef partner of Pugin's Hospitality in Charleston, South Carolina. He got his culinary roots in Wilmington, and after Hurricane Florence, he went back to volunteer with Operation Barbecue Relief. Barbecue is not only tasty. It's a type of food that can be produced at a high level, done well, easily, and you can, with that amount of protein and that amount of smokers, you can feed a lot of people. In addition to helping with the cooking, Doyle delivered food to smaller towns outside of Wilmington that were hit hard by the hurricane. 20 to 40 percent of the houses were flooded. People were pulling every one of their possessions out and putting them on the street. Although Hurricane Florence may be losing steam in the media, the damage is lasting. The biggest need is the smaller town. They don't have the infrastructure and or the money to totally get themselves back together. Just because it's weeks after a storm doesn't mean that they're going to be okay anytime soon. If you are wondering how to help, World Central Kitchen, Pine Valley Market, and Operation Barbecue are keeping their doors open for people in need. You can find these organizations online to donate. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll take a look at what Florence did to the future of farming in North Carolina. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 potato chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Right now, the trillions of gallons of rainwater that fell on North Carolina and its farmlands 
are a huge concern. Kevin Wheeler investigated the effect that flooding will have on large factory farms and smaller produce growers. Sandy Chronic is the CEO of Eastern Carolina Organics. It's a company that distributes organic produce wholesale along the East Coast. Every year, Chronic works closely with upwards of 25 different farmers. This year, Hurricane Florence helped reveal the character of these farmers. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. Eastern Carolina's farmers want to get back to work to salvage what is left of the season. While the sustained rainfall from Florence washed away much of Eastern Carolina's fall greens, some hope remains. According to Chronic, there is still time for farmers to get back a portion of what they lost. It doesn't mean we will lose the entire season. It just certainly sets us back for at least four, if not six weeks. And then there will be a lot less volume than we normally would have experienced just because they simply can't get that many crops back in the ground in such a short time period. Though the fall greens are mostly gone, there is one crop that looks like it may have survived the storm. It's a crop of a certain kind of tuber, and many were saved simply because the timing was right. Sweet potatoes, strangely, seems to be a potential exception among the farmers that we work with. Uh, some were already dug before the hurricane came through, and um, and a lot is being dug this week. So we're certainly still holding our breath, but are remaining hopeful on that, that we will have some decent volume for us to work with this year. Chronic says that small organic farms are at a disadvantage when it comes to disasters like Hurricane Florence. Smaller farms are less likely to be able to insure their crops from damage. But it's not because they can't afford it. So it's much more likely for a large volume organic blueberry farmer, for example, to have crop insurance because it's one crop. It's perennial. That means you do not plant it in every given year. Your bushes go in and they stay in. So you can really show and demonstrate a insurance advisor what your potential income is and therefore what your potential loss could be. And that's how they would come up with your insurance rates and values. In other words, it's easy for a large grower to look stable and uniform, to fit into the box an insurer needs them to fit into. On the other hand, Chronic says that insurers hesitate to cover smaller farmers because they tend to grow a diverse set of rotating crops. In these cases, it doesn't matter if the farm is 5 acres or 50. If a farm is growing a diverse set of plants, it will simply be much harder to determine its monetary value. Hurricane Florence wasn't just a hindrance to small organic farmers. It hit big factory farms, too. The after-effects, however, differ greatly in each case. Chrissy Kasserman is the National Factory Farm Campaigner for Food and Water Watch. It's a group that holds businesses and the government accountable for their negative impacts on food and water. Kasserman says that Florence's floodwaters have shown once again that industrial hog farms are unsustainable and unsafe. The reason for this stems from the massive lagoons of waste attached to each of these farms. Pigs create a lot of waste. 
all of which gets funneled into a lagoon next to the factory farm. It's kind of like a small lake, and as one can imagine, they stink. To make matters worse, flooding can make these lagoons spill over. So the State Department of Environmental Quality has reported that nearly 100 of these lagoons have been compromised by flooding in the wake of Hurricane Florence. And they've, they've indicated that at least two and possibly as many of, as five have been breached, meaning all of their contents have spilled downstream into floodwaters. According to Kasserman, these hog lagoons are dangerous, not just because of the waste they hold, but because so many were constructed in areas prone to flooding. So when hurricanes like Florence and Matthew hit North Carolina, these lagoons tend to overflow. It's a problem for the environment and the people who live near these farms. This waste is, it's running downstream and it's in our rivers and streams where it, where it obviously will impact water quality, but it also is soaking into people's kitchen cabinets and their floors and their walls. And so as people go into their homes to clean up this flood water, they are potentially exposing themselves to deadly pathogens. Kasserman says her home was hit by a flow of animal waste as well. It's damage like this that, for Kasserman, highlights the need for a change in North Carolina's food industry. Factory farms place our public health and our food supply at risk. They wreck our rural communities. They increase corporate control over our food. And we believe at Food and Water Watch that we need to ban new and expanded factory farms and transition existing factory farms to a more regional, diversified method of raising animals for food. For now, Kasserman hopes that the state assembly will work quickly to help those in need, those whose lives have been destroyed by the storm. She says her neighbor's house is still underwater. As Kasserman works to rid her home of waste, she hopes that the government of North Carolina will learn from Florence and take measures to stop this from happening again. Most of us were lucky enough to live outside of Hurricane Florence's path, but we've noticed that in today's hyper-connected world, anyone can be caught in the eye of a different kind of storm. Nina Medvinskaya has the story. Since its inception, social media has had an appetite for stories that quickly gather momentum and effortlessly slip into viral chaos. Any establishment or individual can land at the center of a media storm and be faced with the consequences brought on by rapidly spreading buzz. This week, my foray into the World Wide Web's tumultuous waves led me to DC's culinary realm. Fiola, a chic restaurant known for its star-studded patrons, was submerged in a sticky situation when Senator Ted Cruz and his wife were confronted by left-wing protesters inside the establishment. The confrontation resulted in the senator's hasty departure and left both him and his wife without a meal. Meanwhile, Fiola acquired a plate filled with unsavory Twitter and Yelp backlash. Yelp issued an active cleanup, a feature created to remove reviews that don't address a patron's actual experience with an establishment. This cleanup aimed to manage the abundance of right-wing one-star reviews which criticized Fiola's failure to protect Ted Cruz's dinner plans. Fiola was thus unexpectedly challenged by a cross-platform social media storm and was ill-prepared to traverse those gales. 
The restaurant's co-owner, Triboki, tweeted, I'm in hospitality, not public safety. He stated that the establishment's employees are not trained to deal with these types of scenarios and that perhaps, considering the current climate, it's time to begin training servers in de-escalation tactics. Another D.C. restaurant fell into murky waters for providing too much rather than too little sustenance to its patrons. Shaw's Tavern, a D.C. gastropub, tweeted out a bottomless mimosa special on Thursday, September 27th, the day of Christine Blasey Ford's testimony of sexual assault allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, a nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. The since-deleted tweet attracted outrage and drove a dent into the pub's reputation. To make amends, the establishment donated all of its profits from that day to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. The restaurant tweeted out a statement that read, quote, It was an oversight on our part, given the very serious circumstances of today's hearing, and in no way did we intend to offend anyone or make light of the situation, end quote. It's not only D.C.'s restaurants that have felt the pressures of late September's political tension. The Smithsonian National Museum of American History weathered the consequences of an ill-timed scheduled tweet which read, quote, A National Drink Beer Day, take a moment to meet our brewing historian, Teresa McCoola, hashtag beer history, end quote. The tweet posted the day following Kavanaugh's hearing, during which he repeatedly and forcefully spoke about his beer consumption as a teenager. The tweet resulted in several awkward exchanges between the museum's followers and its social media team. The museum has since apologized for their beer-inspired tweet and stated that it would do a better job of reviewing their slated content from now on. These last few weeks have demonstrated how quickly food can turn political and leave restaurateurs grasping for straws. Fiolas has hired security guards and invested in staff training to mitigate comparable situations in the future. And we may find that more food establishments are going to be taking on similar measures to prepare exit strategies in case they too unexpectedly find themselves in the eye of a storm. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with an episode about food waste. Meat and Three is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with additional reporting by Dylan Hoyer, Ariama Long, Nina Medvinskaya, and Kevin Wheeler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, with additional engineering by Amanda Wang. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Radio.